everybody. I met my guest today, Dr. Deb Debbie Herbenek, in 2006 at a Quad S conference in Indiana. Uh, the Kinsey Institute on the Indiana University campus was and is a fascinating place to tour, but we're not going to talk about that today. Um, we're going to talk about Dr. Debbie Herbenek's book, her most recent book, uh, Yes, Your Kid, What Parents Need to Know About Today's Teens and Sex. My guest is a provost professor at Indiana University uh, School of Public Health, director of the Center of, for Public for Sexual Health Promotion, and an ASEC certified sex, ed, sexuality educator. So Dr. Debbie has, has published thousands of media articles, um, many, several books, and her, her latest book is the one we're going to talk about today, Yes, Your Kid. And I am so pleased to welcome her. I wanted to just add one more thing uh, that Debbie and I met up again in May of last year. And um, she was then putting the final touches on her latest book, the one we're going to talk about today. And so let's talk, Dr. Debbie, and welcome to my program. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. So um, on the on the back of your book, it said it said there's a nice summarizing paragraph. Parents of teenagers and young adults have enormous catching up to do to understand how sexting, internet porn, social media, and more have shaped sex for young people. So um Debbie, why did you decide to write this particular book? Yes, your kid. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I didn't necessarily expect to be writing another book just yet. I've been very busy with research, but the research that I've been busy with was showing me just how much had changed about sexuality for young people, for and not just for teenagers, but even for you know, for elementary school age kids because of technology and because of the way life and society just change. And even though there are so many wonderful sex ed books out there for parents, it it just struck me as a parent myself that those books were written in earlier times, right? Before so many kids were sent to live more of their lives online in the pandemic, before almost every kid had access to a smartphone, um, you know, before there was such widespread access to um to pornography and other sexually explicit media as well. So with these changes and more, I thought, you know, it's really time to share this information with parents so we can better equip them to have supportive conversations with their kids. And so, so, so timely and so needed because did you encounter any other books that were as up-to-date as yours uh, having, having to do with all this new technology that that takes teens and sometimes ra down rather dark paths? You know, I just didn't. Um, and part of it was because also, you know, our team has been doing quite a lot of work on changing sexual behaviors among teenagers and young adults. Since our team um, has really been leading a lot of that work, um, that's no surprise that that wouldn't, you know, be anywhere else. It's It's very new. It's cutting edge stuff. Um, but even books from, you know, from 10 years ago, 
were just written before a time when smartphones were really everywhere. You know, even when they first came about, it was it was adults who had them, not teenagers, not, you know, 10, 11 and 12 year olds. But times have changed. And with more kids having smartphones or being assigned tablet devices from their elementary school teachers and classrooms, um, their device access looks different and therefore kids access to information about sexuality, but also their accidental or intentional, um, you know, seeking out or exposure to sexual images has changed too. So for those of us who are raising kids these days, sexuality issues, although some things are the same as they always were, many things are different. And that's what I mean about being a, a bit of a catch up for many of us, because, um, you know, we just wouldn't have had smartphones when we were growing up. We wouldn't have had the same kinds of access to pornography that kids these days do, whether or not they're actually trying to see images like that. And and many are not trying to, they just stumble upon them in their searches. And that, that makes it all the more scary, really. Uh, the, the whole thing is, is frightening for many uh, parents and, and your book has so much really good information in it. Um, so you talk about, being an askable parent, the importance of being an askable parent. I uh, first Welcome encountered the episode of Ask. I'm sorry, say again, Debbie. No, I just heard a noise. I didn't say an I was listening to you. Oh, okay. okay uh, yeah. yeah, so being an askable parent, I first encountered this term uh, in the early 90s when I took classes from Dr. Sol Gordon. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he was an early sex educator that uh, often used humor to relieve anxiety, I think. But he he was a, a great man. And uh, this whole idea of an askable parent, and you use that in your that term in your book too. Can you talk about? Can you describe what this means? The askable parent. Yes, and and Saul Gordon really was a wonderful sexuality educator, and I feel so lucky, too, to have learned from him and from so many other sex educators who, you know, who shared those ideas with me, right, that it was about being approachable and askable and being somebody that kids could come to with questions, with comments, with observations about the world, and that their parents uh, or caregivers could greet them with warmth, with um you know, support or praise for their curiosity. Um, And, you know, like we would with other things, right? We don't shame kids for their curiosity in, you know, how long bears hibernate in the winter. You know, we think, oh, what a good question. And, and, and if we don't know the answer, we, we try to look it up, you know, look it up with them and so on and try to, to show them how to find out um, information to their questions. But, because sexuality is associated with so much shame for so many adults, and also many adults just don't have practice if their own families didn't raise them with comfort. So many adults just shut kids down when they mean to or not, or or get embarrassed that they don't know the answer. And all of those things can contribute to a parent not seeming approachable or askable or comfortable with those questions. So, you know, so I do encourage parents to work on that. Um, and, you know, and sometimes it is about, you know, exploring your own past and thinking, well, what am I bringing to the situation where um, I might have shame or embarrassment or discomfort or because of the own silence or the own messages I got in my own 
family life growing up or my school life growing up or my religion or culture. So dealing with our own past and then thinking, how do we move forward into the present and future with our kids? And so, you know, encouraging parents to think about um, when their kids do come to them with questions or observations that are about bodies or sexuality, you know, trying to take a moment and, you know, to sort of breathe in and, and, and to think and to feel before we react too quickly to try to respond with questions with a warm smile, um, with a statement like, what a great question, or, huh, I hadn't thought about that before. Really interesting. What do you think about that? So something that encourages curiosity and that also communicates that it's okay and, and interesting um, and smart and thoughtful to be wondering about bodies and sexuality, just like we would want to communicate with other questions kids have about the world. One of my um, questions that I ask my clients, um, as as you know, and as many of my listeners know, I'm still in private practice, and I'll ask them about how did you get your sex education, and very few of them um, will say their parents, and 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 I see people all the way from 25 to 75, and very few, and of course silence is a message. And usually when the parents won't talk about it, there is a lot, as you said, a lot of shame around it, around sex and blame. And sometimes this is often, not sometimes, often, this is as a result of being raised in an evangelical church uh, and and there are lots of messages from the church. And it can be um, also that... Um, that parents uh, just don't have enough information and feel like they're too shy to talk to their kids. Um, and I, I, one of the things you talk about in, in talking to your kids about sex that I like a lot um, is inviting the kids to ask questions um, because this really is how kids let adults know that that they're ready, what they're ready to hear and to process. And of course, it's not a perfect system, but uh, it does allow them to drive the conversation with their own age-informed curiosity. Um, and and to that I think the askable parent says, you know, I want you to, if you can, ask me even uncomfortable questions because kids who don't understand something fully, we all know this, and who aren't ready yet often follow rather bizarre paths on their own. Um, they're, you know, they're sort of, they get some pretty wild conclusions. So encouraging transparency is, I think, the best chance at keeping your kid and keeping all of you on a factual path. So asking questions. Asking questions. Yeah, absolutely. And responding really to just what they've asked. I think some parents exactly. worry that they aren't going to know enough about something and they think, oh, I don't, I don't know everything about this topic. How could I, you know, so I'm getting, I feel nervous and worried about explaining it, but you don't usually actually have to say that much. And, you know, sometimes when I do workshops for parents, they say, oh, you know, how am I 
supposed to tell my my seven or eight or nine year old about how babies are made or my five year old. Uh, you know, we're expecting a, ba- in a, ba- a baby in our family. What do we what do we say? And for the youngest kids, really often when they're asking how babies are made, you know, it can really be as simple as saying, for example, like, oh, well, you know, like one parent has a sperm and one parent has an egg. And, you know, the most it's the most common way that babies are made. They come together and and, you know, that's the beginning of a baby. And, you know, and that's really fine for a lot of very young kids, you know, yeah. preschool age kids. And then at some point, kids start to piece more things together and they might say, you know, I know that one parent has a sperm and another has an egg, but how does the sperm get to the egg, you know? And then, then they're ready for a little more information and you just sort of, you know, keep adding more. And those questions, as you said, Diana, will let, you know, will drive the conversation, will let parents and caregivers know what information they're ready for. And you just don't have to go too far. They have shorter attention spans as young kids anyway. They don't want to be bored and overwhelmed by, you know, a college professor lecture, you know, on sexuality. <laughs> yes. They yes. just want a quick answer to their question. Yeah, the the old story about the kid who asked the, the dad, where do I come from? And uh, he goes into a long spiel about uh, the sperm and the egg and all of that. And uh, and this is from a five-year-old, the question. And really all the five-year, five-year-old was asking was where was I born? That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like in the hospital or at home or yeah, whatever. yeah. And mm-hmm. so anyway, yeah, to be the askable parent and to say, I'm not sure of the answer, but let's look it up together. Or I'll look it up and get back to you. And then of course, as a responsible parent, you must do that. You must follow through uh and get back. Uh, and to find the right moments when you do get back. Um, you have some pretty good strategies uh, for talking to your children. Uh, for for so many parents really have um, lots of trepidation about about being the sex educator of their child, and of course they're the sex educator of their child, whether they want to be or not. <laughs> you know, it's It's like you said. I mean, yeah. silence is education. Right. Same as education, Um, saying nothing and just your kids observing you and how, you know, your family works, like who, you know, cleans the table, who goes to work, who helps with homework. All of that is education about gender roles and how families work. And and so all of it is, you know, what what we laugh at in movies or what we worry about and and kind of change the channel on and stuff sends messages to our kids. So whether we want to be or not, we are our children's first educators about sex and gender. And there's lots of good ways to approach it. And since Yes, Your Kid came out, I think one of the the really fun things for me has been hearing from parents who are trying some of the strategies in the book. And as you know, I list quite a few um, because parents and families have to find the ones that work for them. Yes. And you know, one, one uh, reader, for example, shared that They've been trying um, the five-minute conversations, I suggest, where um, you kind of say, well, look, these issues around, you know, bodies or sexuality or dating or wherever, you know, you're at with that child and and their development are really important to me. I really want to make sure you have this information. So once a week, you know, let's set a timer for five minutes and we'll talk. And when the timer is done, like the conversation's done, unless you want to keep going. And, you know, and so this reader shared how they had been doing that week after week and all the really interesting 
conversations that they and their child had had. And that will work really well for some families. And for others, it's going to be, you know, having these conversations while driving in the car on the way, you know, to sports or dance class or um, or just even letting their kids overhear them and their spouse or co-parent talk about things. And, you know, some some families don't do as well with direct conversations, but the kids like to eavesdrop on what their parents are talking about. And I know some parents who that works really well for them. So I think it's, you know, it's finding the rhythm that's right for you and your family, but making it something that you decide for sure you're going to do. Mm -hmm. Yes, and and uh, you say take advantage of the kids' curiosity, and the kids kind of love to eavesdrop. So, so start talking responsibly about sex with another adult, knowing that you'll be overheard. That's right. As long as there are things that you're fine being over, you know, overheard about, and you want them to know, and that can be a great way to do it. And also, really, I think tapping into your child's own rhythms. You know, there are some kids who really open up at night, right? And parents will say, oh, I have to kind of have an earlier bedtime because I can count on them as they drift off to sleep, bringing up the big questions of, of life. And so for those <laughs> kids, making sure you really have that time, you know, before bed, because that is when they might share information they have about, you know, their first feelings of a crush or something they're worried about it, uh, you know, with a peer or a partner or dating um, or how babies are made. And other kids open up in really different scenarios, you know, the first thing in the morning over breakfast or only during one-on-one -on -one time. And then you might want to build in some nice, you know, neighborhood walks with them or something, but one-on-one -on -one time to hang out with that kid and hear what's on their mind. And every child's different, but understanding when our kids are really the most open to us and just trying to be present during those kinds of times can also be a big help to getting to know them better in general, and also to being there for the kinds of questions and curiosities they have about bodies and love and dating and sexuality. So it really helps parents if they can start early with their children. Um, I have good memories from when I was really small and and my parents were very open and, and, and loved each other. And I had that all that secure attachment and they really gave us a good, uh, good factual information about sexuality. But my earliest memory of this is when I was maybe three years old. And I really remember this. And I was out with my mother and, and uh, I saw a woman nearby. I think we were in a park. And I said, Oh, mommy, look at that fat lady, you know, no filters at three years old. And my mother said, No, Diana, that lady isn't fat. She's pregnant. And she's carrying a baby inside of her belly. And, and that was all I needed right then. But I thought, oh, okay, that's exciting. <laughs> that was one of my earliest memories. I was fortunate that my parents did talk to me. And then, of course, that set the stage for my being really interested in sexuality long before I went to graduate school, which was in my late 20s, to, to do this work. Um, and so, but my parents were very open and I think that helped me and I didn't have to take abnormal psych 101 in undergraduate school to find out how come I was so fucked up because I, I wasn't, I was pretty well balanced. It helped. You had a different experience, but it drove you to do the work you do. Can you just talk personally about your experience growing up in Miami, Miami and with your parents? 
Yeah, you know, I grew up in a very open city about sexuality, but a really complicated city around sexuality, too, because, of course, um, you know, just there's there's sort of a lot of sexual images and a lot of different cultures and different perspectives on sexuality. And many of my friends' families were open about sexuality, um, but my family was not. Um, both of my parents had been raised in homes where um, sexuality was not discussed. They had been raised in really traditional Catholic homes and different kinds of Catholic homes for those familiar with Catholicism. You know, so one was like an Irish Catholic home, Irish English Catholic home, and the other one was like Eastern Orthodox, but both very, very different, um, but also shut down around sexuality. And so I think my parents tried to do better with us than had been done in their own homes, but they didn't have any models for how to talk about sexuality. And so, so they didn't, you know, on the one hand, I think they were, they were fine or supportive of the fact, the fact that we were getting some school-based sexuality education, but it was still pretty limited. And my memories are of, you know, watching one of those puberty videos in, in fifth grade where they would separate the girls and the boys and show these yeah. videos. And, you know, and my mom driving me to dance class and kind of nervously, you know, asking um, if I had seen a video in class in school that day. And I said, yes. And she asked if I had any questions. And I said, no. And that was it. That was it. And then, you know, a couple years later, when I had my first period, I needed, you know, to get, you know, to get uh, menstrual products. And so I yes. did, you know, I did tell her what happened, but she, it, you know, the conversation again was so uncomfortable. She gave me like a brown grocery bag with pads in it and just said, I have the things you need. And that was it. And so that was the first and only conversation we ever had about periods because, even though I was really young, I decided after that I wasn't ever going to ask her again because it it was so uncomfortable. Um, and so I found ways to like literally ride my bike, you know, miles like outside of where I was even allowed to be riding my bike to go get tampons on my own because that was even though it was a little scary to be for me to ride further outside my neighborhood than I ever had. It was that was seemed like a much better scenario to me than approaching my mom again for, you know, for tampons or, or pads or anything. And I never talked with my dad about those things at all. Um, and so it wasn't until I was in college and email became, you know, a thing. And he would sometimes, you know, as people started in the early days of the internet, it was pretty common to just send forwards of funny jokes that pe people were sending and he had sent me some that were pretty funny and had, you know, like funny sex jokes in them. And I remember thinking, oh, well, that's kind of funny that he feels comfortable, you know, sharing these jokes with me. And and that's interesting. And um, and it was it was a different experience, I think, as a young adult to feel like he, you know, he could make some of these jokes or share some of those jokes with me. Um, but it was really the only exposure. We never had a really serious conversation about sexuality. And it wasn't until I went to grad school that I really, you know, started to with my mom when I would tell her what I was learning and why I cared about studying it. And even, you know, started teaching human sexuality and I'd bring my textbook home over school breaks and, and just like leave it with her. And I would say, if you want to talk about any of these things with me, I'd be happy to talk with you because she still didn't, didn't know too much about those topics. And, and really going to grad school started a whole series of conversations with with my mom, especially, um, and my grandmother that we had never had while I was growing up. And I, I wished 
that that had been possible while I was growing up. And you bring up your grandmother, and I shared with you yesterday when we were talking that uh, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, was really a very good sex educator. And I felt, even though I felt comfortable asking my mother, my my her mother was even more comfortable for me. Uh, she didn't have any judgments, uh, you know, like my parents said, oh, sex is a wonderful thing. It's it's a beautiful thing. And they were affectionate with each other. So they modeled uh, that. But um, they, it's a wonderful thing. But the caveat was, wait till you're married. And so I stayed, of course, I was born <laughs> 30 or more years before you. But um, I stayed a virgin until I was 22 years old because I, and then I realized I'm not going to get married young. I, I want to see the world and have adventures and try different things. And uh, so I finally lost my virginity with a man, I, a young man that I really cared about. But imagine that, that I didn't have any, any intercourse at all until I was 22 years old, a, a good, but I was a little more mature. And that, I think that helped me realize that sex will get better with practice because it wasn't just great at the beginning, but now we have kids in middle school, even in middle school with access to porn. Can we shift our conversation a bit into pornography? And then uh, I think that we need to talk about um, something that you on uh, you were on CNN and Ian Kerner, and I, I know Ian, he's a terrific uh, marriage and family therapist, writer, and so on. But um, he asked you, one of the trends you discussed that I found surprising, and as a parent, a bit triggering, was rough sex and even choking among teens. Well, maybe we go to that since I brought, brought up the detail. But of course, we can tie the pornography into that because the kids are seeing that on porn. Um, so would you talk about porn and the choking uh, yeah, it goes absolutely. on. Yes. And and these but. are related. Porn certainly isn't the only driver of it, but it's a big one. Yes. And so, yes. So for several years now, my research, and again, this was a big motivation for writing Yes, Your Kid. My research um, actually for since 2008, so for about 16 years, has focused on understanding sexual trends in the United States. So I do these large U.S. nationally representative surveys of thousands of Americans, and I've been doing them again since 2008. But what happened over time was I was seeing changes in the kinds of sex that my college students were talking about. And around 2015, more of them were asking questions about rough sex and choking and, you know, different sorts of behaviors that traditionally we would have associated with interest in BDSM or kink. But these students, for the most part, were not identifying as being interested in BDSM or kink. It was more connected in their worlds with like things they saw in pornography or things they read about or saw in Fifty Shades of Grey. And so uh, like more mainstream versions of kinkier kinds of sex. And choking especially was coming up. And so I happened to be doing a nationally representative survey at the time, and I thought, well, let's just see what happens. Um, there was no data anywhere in the world from these large, you know, nationally representative studies about people's engagement in these in these rough sex practices, for lack of a better term. So we put different ones in there, including choking, and the numbers came back just really astounding, showing that 
around 20% of adult women ages 18 to 60 had ever been choked during sex, but that that number was almost double among 18 to 29 year olds. So I sort of dropped everything and, and said, you know, we need to understand a lot more about this because this is a behavior that our best estimates would have put in, in prior years, you know, let's say in the early 2000s, that maybe like one or 2% of people having ever done in their whole lives. So to see like 40% of people engaging in a pretty high risk behavior that was generally even advised against in BDSM and kink communities because of the risk, uh, although rare, but the real risk of, of accidentally killing somebody was astounding. And so yes. through a number of studies, um, nationally representative studies, college campus studies, we have found that, um, you know, one in three 18 to 24-year-old women, for example, were choked the last time they had sex, that most college students have engaged in choking at some point. When it happens between women and men, it's almost always men choking women. It's also seen in same-sex um, partner, um, you know, sex as well. And you know, and they, it's mostly consensual. They'll mostly talk about liking it or at least doing it because they think their partner likes it. Mostly they think it's safe because of what they see in porn and what they see on TikTok videos and what they read about. If you Google it, you'll find all sorts of articles that say it's safe and here's how, how to do it. You know, people can die, but not if you do it these quote unquote safe ways. So there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, and it, it is risky. And so, you know, it, it there again, it's rare that people die, but they do. But more often what you see are people having neck bruising and neck pain and um, changes to their vision, changes to their voice. So it becomes more hoarse or raspy. Um, and so, you know, losing consciousness, which can affect the brain. So we've done all sorts of work, not only showing how common it is, but also looking at the health consequences and it just feels, you know, it's one of those things that many parents, grandparents, caregivers, teachers cannot believe. They think, no way, no way is this happening. I would have heard about this. But it's happening in, you know, in these almost very invisible ways to us because of the way media is set up these days. You know, we don't all watch the same shows. And so it's easy for our kids to be watching shows that we never see. Whereas like when I was growing up, you know, if I if I was watching Beverly Hills 90210, which was a popular show when I was in high school, even if my parents didn't watch it with me, it was on in the house. They would have been able to overhear it. You know, it was in the family room. I didn't have my own private device in my, you know, in my bedroom. Exactly. I could watch it from a phone. So so generally it was easier to know what your teens were seeing. And these days it's a lot easier for teens to see stuff on TikTok and for parents to never know. You know, in the in November and December, there were a few weeks where the number one song in the country um, was a song by Jack Harlow, who's a very popular singer. Um, he has a song called Lovin' On Me. And many parents listening to this may may know the song because they may have heard their, their teenager listening to it or their elementary school kid listening to it. Number one song in the country. And it includes a line about choking. And not only that, but it describes it as vanilla or mainstream. And so this video on YouTube has, in the two months since the song has been out, has been viewed more than 60 million times. Oh, my God. 60 million times. I mean, I check almost every day to see what's it up to now. It can go up a million views in a day. 
And so, you know, it's, it is out there. It's really not that hidden. It's just that it's hidden from many of us parents because most of us don't really follow Jack Harlow, right? Most of us don't watch The Idol or Euphoria, which are teenagers or shows, or shows that our teens might watch. And so, you know, we're not looking at the same TikTok videos. That that song, um, Jack Harlow's Love and Me song, has more than one million TikTok videos that use that song. And there's even like a dance they do in, in kind of mime out the the choking with a hand on the neck. And so it's super common. And when people come to my talks where I talk about this, what we call the rise in rough sex, um, and it, I say, look, if you don't believe me, if you think there's no way, you know, teens or or college students or young adults are doing this, just ask the young people in your life. Ask if they've heard about it. Ask what they've, you know, see, ask where they've seen stuff about it. Um, when we do our interviews, we find sure some people, especially boys or young men, will talk about pornography. But very often they talk about TikTok. They talk about social media memes. They Sometimes they can't even remember because they'll just say, well, it's just sort of everywhere. You know, it's on TV shows. It's in music videos. It's everywhere. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's um, you know, it's something that parents need to know about and talk about with their kids because the reality is that school-based sex education is not going to be able to talk about this, right? We have enough political division over teaching about condoms or birth control or sexual orientation. So, um, you know, not only would it be a politically fraught issue for, for most schools to be able to talk about rough sex and choking, but frankly, it's not something that most sexuality educators or teachers would have much training in talking about in a non-shaming but fact-based way anyway. And that's one reason our team has also been working really hard to um, you know, to do good research, to publish it so that we th we can create better training materials for teachers and parents so they can have quality conversations with young people about, you know, these kinds of sex that, that young people are seeing, they may be thinking about doing, whether or not they're actually doing it. It's just one of those possibilities to them. And we should step into those conversations with them. Absolutely. And I'm thinking, Debbie, because of the research and and now this book, which you wrote along with two uh, women who are lawyers, and, and I think this brings in the, the legal ramifications of this. But anyway, so here you, you this work is so important and and it could save lives. It could I hope save it lives. does. I'm, I yeah. mean, yeah. And it could also change the trajectory of a young person's sexuality you know we we want our we want our kids to have healthy sexuality and talk we need to talk in generally speaking in sex education and i know you do this because it's in your book too to talk about pleasure so often pleasure isn't even mentioned in in sex education in Certainly not in grade school. That's about periods and sort of the mechanics of it, the plumbing, plumbing, but but also um, in the older age. And it's going to be really hard to to talk about pleasure if if uh, if you don't if you're not comfortable yourself as a sex educator with pleasure. But this other problem that you've just been talking about is even uh, harder to deal with because. How do you create sex education where where sex ed educators are trained 
to deal with the this darker side of I mean I call it darker because all of, of all of the risks associated and and people just don't in fact I read a lot and I I'm always reading about sexuality and new books and just got back from a conference uh, the evolution of psychotherapy which was really interesting so I read a lot but until I read your whole chapter on rough sex and choking that's not the title of it, but uh, I I did not know that it it existed to this extent, and I try to keep up on things, so I I was I was shocked. I was it shocked. Really, it, yeah, it, it really is shocking. I mean, you know, I think until it's it's funny. I think you can probably appreciate this, Diana. But you know, for those of us who work as sexuality professionals, we are used to being kind of unflappable, right? Yes, we, that's right. You often feel like we've seen it all, we've heard it all, and exactly and I really thought that I had too, and and I thought most of my colleagues had, and then I got into this work, and I think most of us have not been prepared for a behavior that, again, you know, used to be probably so incredibly uncommon and rare, the best we can tell, like hardly anyone engaged in choking, which is really a form of strangulation, even though no one calls it that. Um, but it is because it uses external pressure to the neck to, you know, to block airways and or blood flow. And so um, so it is. But it was it was so rare, even in the BDSM and kink communities. To, so to go from that in a pretty short span of years to something that is really common and normative among young adults and increasingly common among teenagers is striking. And and when I would do this research and give talks, I mean, I was not used to seeing my colleagues' jaws drop, but I am now because everyone's kind of saying, wait, I did not know this. And I'm a sex researcher or a sex therapist or a sex educator. But many people who are hearing it are, um, you know, dealing with first response to sexual assaults in communities and campuses. Since doing this work, I get a lot of requests from um, law enforcement departments, from sexual violence prevention folks, from domestic violence groups who have seen this increase in their own cases. Um, college campuses all over are really struggling with this. And it's not just an American thing. I've, um, you know, have colleagues in New Zealand and Australia and Sweden and the United Kingdom um, who are all seeing this in their communities too. They have been um, they are are have been slower to collect um, survey and interview data, but they are starting to. Um, re very recently, there were some dissertation data that just came out out of Iceland, which is another place that had been remarking about seeing this uptick, but now to see the same kinds of data, similar trends, right? Where it's most common with young people, it's it's almost unheard of among older people. And when I say older, I mean we're talking fifty and up, and so it's it's just. The same kind of thing in all of these countries where there's been just been this huge shift and um, and this real generational divide in these countries where, you know, people who are sort of, you know, 45, 50 and up are saying we've we've almost never done this. Like, what are you talking about? How could this be so common? And younger adults saying, yeah, I mean, it's fine. Everyone does it. We know the safe ways to do it. Like, don't worry, we're fine. Um, but not everyone's fine. And as some of the legal cases describe in the book, too, you know, there are some challenges. So even when people think about it as normative and they are in concept fine with it, 
the reality is not always acceptable to them or it doesn't always feel good to them. So, you know, I've seen cases like this in the attorneys, Christina and Susan, who contributed to Yes, Your Kid, describe cases like this too, where somebody, for example, might ask their partner to choke them or to slap them, but they're not prepared for how hard their partner chokes them or slaps them. Their partner might not even be trying to hurt them, but they might actually be trying to give them pleasure, but they're just doing what they've seen in pornography or what a past partner has asked them to do or just what they think, you know, maybe they've heard about. And so so we see a lot of um, harm and many of it actually never goes to the stage of a sexual assault report. But in the interviews that I've done, I've just seen so many young people trying to to figure all this out. And they're really figuring it out mostly on their own uh, with their with their friends, with their partners. Um, you know, again, they're not usually talking with parents about this and um, they're not talking with healthcare providers for the most part. We've asked them that too. And so that's hard, you know, and, and some of them come to places where they they go through a difficult period of of negotiating those things with their partners, and then they find a way to create a sex life that works for them with or without forms of rough sex. But many of them just stop having sex with partners because they it's just kind of scary to them. Um, and others just kind of put up with it, right? And and think like whether or not I like it, this is just what it is. And they young people will even use the term um, a fear of being uh, vanilla shamed, which is being seen as like too vanilla, too traditional, too boring in bed, um, maybe concerns that their partner will leave them. And it could be of any gender. I mean, there's a lot of the rough sex is tied up in perceptions of masculinity. So some men don't want to be rough with their partners, but they worry that if they're not, that their partner might reject them. And um, and of course, some women also worry that if they don't act like they like it or even seek it out, that they might be seen as boring too. So we really need to step into these conversations to talk about pleasure, to talk about communication, to talk about safety, and also figuring out like, well, how do two people decide what they want their sex lives to look like? How do they create something that works for them where people feel, you know, mutually respected, um, cared for, um, and I and I always tell my students, I'm not even talking about that this person has to be the love of your life or cared for like you're going to be with them for a year, but um, or five years or forever. But but just I mean, just caring for one another as a as another human being and as a partner, whether it's a short lived casual situation or something more serious. Yes. And, um, you know, I. <laughs> In getting ready for the show, I was I thought, well, I'm going to um, I'm going to Google rough sex. Well, this long list came up porn, porn, watching porn and watching teens, uh, supposedly pornography uh, produ production can't use any porn actors under 18. But um, but anyway, they talked in, in, I did open up one, and that was on WebMD. And uh, they, they, they talked about aftercare, which kind of ties in with what uh, you were talking about, because um, it gives you both, if you talk about aftercare and talk about it, it gives you both time to process an experience and talk further about it. And and 
And so aftercare can include things like kissing, snuggling, uh, talking kindly to each other. And it can also be actual care, uh, taking some pain medication, cold uh, uh, compresses and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, I remember reading, oh, probably 10 years ago, a wonderful article that a uh, research piece that talked about how adults uh, practicing BD BDSM were actually very good communicators. They were better communicators in many cases than people who practiced vanilla sex. But how can young people who have so little information, and, and a lot of them are in the hookup culture, they don't really know each other, and how can they have these enlightened conversations with their partners when they're so young? Um, it, you know, we, it's it, it really is upsetting to think about these kids going into this with so little information and just thinking they want to fit in and do what everybody else is doing, so they think. It so, is. Yeah. Yeah, it's really difficult because... As we started out discussing, so many people are raised in homes where they um, have no conversation or sexuality education and familiarity with having those kinds of conversations. So, so they're not well equipped to have these much more complex conversations that have to do with safety issues and harm and, and power and so on. Um, you know, some are equipped to do that, but most are not. And so, you know, so when we think about de sexual development, you know, it, it usually is more incremental, right? And and you go from like these stages of like crushes and then kissing and all of these things. But for many of the young people that I've interviewed, sometimes the choking, you know, was something that they learned about because it happened to them the very first time they hooked up with somebody or had sex with somebody. Um, and it might be in their very first hookup makeout situation that somebody started hitting them and calling them names and choking them and smothering them and and things of that nature. So it's not happening like in a, a nice, you know, slow developmental arc where you have time to catch up and time to to figure out what you like or don't like and time to get to know somebody and, and really communicate like, you know, these really advanced tricky things. The other thing I worry about that I that I really think is helpful for parents and grandparents and other caregivers to think about is in the context of this mainstreaming of rough sex. Well, what do young people think of as a red flag in a you know for an unhealthy relationship? Because certainly when you know when I was coming of age and and becoming sexual with people, I mean my friends and I would have been would have seen it as a red flag if somebody started to, you know, choke or strangle somebody, right? If somebody had come back and said, oh, they started doing this to me during sex, or they called me these terrible names or started slapping me, that probably, you know, that would have been been cause for concern um, if it just came out of the blue like that. And um, And now it's not, right? Now that's fairly normative. So I think even inviting young people into those conversations with, well, you know, how do you think you deserve to be treated? How would you know if if this wasn't right for you? How would you feel if somebody did these things? Because Diana, you're right. You know, in the context of BDSM and kink communities, there have always been these principles of, you know, it used to be called safe, sane, and consensual. Then it became, you know, risk-aware, consensual kink. And these phrases that, that you know, bring to mind issues of explicit negotiation 
careful, thoughtful conversations around consent, drawing boundaries, having really detailed conversations about, well, okay, you want to be hit at what intensity, right? Like how light, how hard? Okay, you, you're you fine with being called names. Are there some names that are off limits that would feel really bad to you and other names that you would prefer to be called? Well, those detailed conversations, for the most part, are not happening in these mainstream versions of rough sex. So it's not, you know, it's so it's it's taking those behaviors, but taking them out of the context of the care, consent, and communication that many of us uh, many of us associate with people who are engaged in kink and BDSM communities, and that's a recipe for for a lot of difficulty when those things become taken out of the care, communication, and consent. Care, communication, and consent. Yes, uh, and and I I really I mean our our sexual our sexuality, our sexual confidence needs to be built slowly. It's it's a matter of experience and practice and being with uh, somebody that we care about and trust. And if you if you're first, I'm just trying to think how absolutely frightening and disturbing it would be if you're if as a girl your first experience is with a boy who's slapping you or calling you names, even if you had talked about it, but you don't have experience. So Oh, it, it could affect your the development of your sexuality in some very serious ways. Um, I remember early on in my um, practice, well, actually my practice in Seattle, because I've been here now 15 years, and um, a stripper came to me for counseling. And she and uh, the bartender were into really rough sex. And she said, I still remember, she said, our safe word is sprinkles, but I say the safe word and he doesn't even acknowledge it or change his behavior. And sometimes I get hurt. Now, this was a 21-year-old woman who was voluntarily working as a stripper. But even at that age, she wasn't being um, respected and with her safe word. So I just imagine that because teenage time is such a confusing time anyway. So it's got to be just really hard for so many of these young people. It does. And it's all the more reason why, you know, as parents and caregivers, we need to to open these conversations with them because many of them actually, as I've done these interviews, they don't actually know that this is a newer change to sex. Many of them actually think this is how sex has always been. So many of them don't identify some of the things like exactly what you described where somebody uses a safe word, but the partner keeps going or they ask for something to be light or gentle, but the partner is really rough with them. And so they don't necessarily identify those as really out of bounds or as assault or as harm. And they they just think they have to put up with it. And, you know, sometimes even just letting these people know that, first of all, no, sex has not always been like this. Let me tell you how it's changed. But also like, here's what you deserve, right? Here's what, here's the kind of way you deserve to be treated can be really eye-opening and emotional and can mean a lot to young people to, to really be affirmed that they deserve to be treated with care, with compassion, with respect, with having, um, you know, with getting a say in the kind of sex life that they want to create, with it actually feeling pleasurable for them with them having any limits at all that they assert to have those respected. 
Um, you know, it's just not all of that is apparent to young people today. And we need to um, to share that with them, I think. We need to share that. Absolutely. And um, we're coming close to the end. And I, uh, you said, I'm going to quote you now. This was uh, in your interview with Ian, Dr. Ian Curran. Uh, Ian, yeah, Kerner, Kerner, sorry. And um, so you said to him, I wrote, yes, your kid out of concern, but also from a place of hope and optimism. Let your teen know that you want them to have fulfilling relationships in life. And that may include sex if they want. Be that resource and safety net for them. Hear, hear, Dr. Debbie. That's that's a beautiful way to conclude this show, but I would like you to add on any final uh, important messages that you'd like to get out. And of course, when I write write up the show notes, it'll it should be available. The show should be available by tomorrow. Um, I'm I'm going to suggest, of course, that they get your book. But do you have any final kind of messages? Um, for yeah. yes, you know, I think you. that I think many parents, whether it's talking about how babies are made, or talking about puberty, or talking about these really daunting topics like rough sex and and choking and so on. Anything can trip a parent up and make them feel like, oh, I can't do that, or that's too hard, or there's no way. But you really can, you know. And I know I have a lot of training and I've been to school for these kinds of things, but still, I started out as somebody who wasn't even able to talk about how babies are made or puberty or periods with my family. And it's possible for all of us, one step at a time, as I say in Yes, Your Kid. Even though I present a lot of conversations and a lot of tactics to move forward, try one, right? Pick one thing out and start. It is not a marathon in one day, right? It is a marathon over time. And we do a little bit at a time. And that's how we make progress with our family. And that's how we, again, like move that slow developmental arc forward to support our kids and also to nurture ourselves as parents who care so much about our children and their futures. We can do it. Of course. And that's such that's such good advice. And and that and I think your your strategy to commit to five minutes a week kind of represents the baby steps. Uh, set the timer and use that five minutes to talk about sex with your kid. When the timer sounds, you can end the discussion or keep going. And then Another strategy that you put, and I don't think we quite talked enough about this, is to ask questions that you say that chances are that your teen knows more about some trends and topics than you do. And so start with, I heard about X, Y, and Z. Can you help me understand that? Again, starting with questions. And and then it makes you more human and to the kid, and it also lets the kid know that you're really concerned. You want your child to have a balanced life that includes sexuality if they want it. Good sex. Good sex with pleasure. And and if they decide to do the BDSM thing, they need to be, well, probably a little older, but to follow 
some of the, your, the suggestions that you have in your book. And you do suggest that that kids can can read your book. Teenagers can read your book. And maybe the parent puts little post-it notes uh, on places that would mean a lot to them. They post-it notes that would likely resonate for the kid. So, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Dr. Debbie Herbenek, thank you so much. You're just such an such a wonderful person. I happen to know that, but you're also the best sex educator and writer, and you're doing work that is absolutely potentially life-saving. But we need we need the data that you've collected. So thank you for that. Thank you for your book. Thank you for this interview and for taking the time to do it, Debbie. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. All right, everybody. Remember, have some fun in life, but you need to have backup information too. So <laughs> goodbye, everybody.